So you think about you're spending time with this person, they, they bellyache for an hour and then, and then you say goodbye. And it's almost like you could, you didn't even have to be there. You were a pair of ears for them and, and nothing else. And it's, it's that lack of curiosity that's so bothersome. Like God, say you know, it louder for the people in the back, life. Kyler. Say it louder. <laughs> that lack of curiosity. Ah, oh, it's. I think uh, you know if we were to put one giant sin over the top of it, it's really that. It's gonna be a really neat behind the scenes. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. Because something always magical happens. Wait, what? Did you just make that up? Hey, it's Meredith for Real, the Curious Introvert. Listen each week as I talk with someone new. The topics are as ADD as I am, but they'll inspire you to stay curious and grow. Big thanks to our location sponsor, the UWF Historic Trust. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. In a recent survey, you told me that you'd like to hear more episodes on the subject of adult friendship. And I love that you love this topic because it's one of those areas of life where we're all pretending like we know what we're doing, but we're fully clueless. Now, if this is your first time here, I am so happy you're here. You may want to know that I often feature questions people wonder in private, like adult friendship, but don't think out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. This curious community believes that curiosity isn't just for five-year-olds. It's something that can make the world a better place. And in order to go where it leads, we must break free from whatever the algorithm is serving up. So each episode is different, and I invite you to bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Now, this week's guest is a PhD psychologist and the author of a friendship book, but having read a few of these friendship books now, this one I can tell you is really unique because it focuses on how to be a better friend, not just how to not be awkward. In this episode, he not only covers the seven deadly sins of friendship, but also the biggest overarching sin one can commit. Now, if you're a repeat listener, thank you so much. I'd love if you could do me a favor and tap those stars on the Apple Podcast app. You don't have to write a review. You can just leave a star rating and that will tell future guests and sponsors that what we do here is pretty awesome and they should be a part of it too. They honest to God, look at the number of ratings to determine the size of the podcast audience. So give those stars on Apple podcasts, a little tappity tap. And if you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one I did about the psychology of male friendships, why it's easy for boys to make friends, but hard for men. That's episode 170. All right, friends, enjoy the show. According to my counselor friends, the one question that gets brought up every single day in their office is, how do I make new friends? Many will do what I've done when trying to figure something out. They buy a book. Well, my next guest is a licensed psychologist, TEDx speaker, and president and chief clinical officer at one of the largest mental health practices in Texas. He's been featured by Forbes, the New York Times, and CNN for his work in combating the loneliness epidemic. And he's also the author of The Friendship Formula, a very different kind of adult friendship book, where the focus is on how to be a good friend in order to have a good friendship. Now, if you're having like a hand to forehead slap moment right now, like, oh yeah, good friend equals good friendship. That makes sense. You're not alone. Today, he's going to cover the seven deadly sins of friendship and help us ask ourselves the question, 
Am I a bad friend? Introvert, impact maker, friend to the friendless, Dr. Kyler Shumway. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, this is so exciting. I know. I really love your book. And it's true. This is not, I mean, I've been reading some friendship books lately, and this is a very different book. And I not only love it because you have a story in each chapter that you help to illustrate your point, but also because of the number of references to your love of nacho cheese. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I'm going to say a lot of cliches today probably, but I'm just a fan of everything cheesy and it all goes back to nachos. Uh, yep. It's, it's the best. (laughs) I was also struck by how you shared in the book, how you wanted so badly to get invited to certain things. And then when you got invited to parties or events, you declined and then you were sad about it. Like for the rest of the evening, I had no idea other people did that. Kyler, that is like eye opening to me. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's like being a cat, uh, you know, cats, uh, they, they want you to snuggle them and pet them. And then you go to do that. And then they're like, no, you're like, I don't want to be held or pet right now. And I think that's just so true of so many people because all of us crave connection and intimacy with, with other people. Um, but connection and intimacy are also terrifying. Um, and it, it can be an energy output. You know, you have to invest time and energy to have relationships with other people, to put yourself out there, to go to that party. And so after a long day of work or whatever else might be going on, it's, it's hard to make that kind of investment sometimes. Oh God, so. That's so true. That's how I know you really are an introvert that you brought up that example because I sometimes <laughs> as an introvert myself, I sometimes think like, am I going to enjoy hanging out with that person as much as I enjoy hanging out with myself? Mm, maybe not. Yep. There's a, a a meme on the internet where the, it's a picture of a girl sort of like drawing. And the idea is, is, you know, she's sitting there drawing, having a m- wonderful time. And it's, this is me imagining doing the thing and then me actually doing the thing. And it shows the same girl like laying on her desk, exhausted. And, and it's, I, I, I think so many of us see social uh, events sort of like that, where you imagine yourself going to a party and having a blast, but then when it's time to actually go, you're you're not thinking about having a blast. You're thinking about, oh gosh, this is going to be so much. Or even when you go, it is, it's an energy drain. So yeah. Yeah. It can be overwhelming. You also make several references to the book with about people with autism. What's your connection with your uh, interest in autism? Yeah. Um, some, some of the people I love most in this world are autistic and, you know, uh, from family members to, to friends and it's something that was uh, part of my life growing up and not, not my own experience. I, I see myself as being neurodivergent in maybe other ways, but not autistic. Um, and I think that the autism community um, is is something that's that's uh, been brought more into the spotlight recently. More and more people are realizing that they're autistic. They're noticing that they have differences or or things that other people might not. And so, I think that, uh, for me, it's it's just lovely to be able to have humans in general noticing more and more of what makes them unique, what what needs they might have, and so. Yeah. uh, In grad school, it became a clinical interest because I was sort of like, what's going on here? And how can I help people who maybe uh, uh, see the world differently or approach the world differently? And so uh, naturally that brought me to autism and 
ADHD and lots of other neurodiversities. Yeah, I I really appreciated that. Uh, my friend uh, is the executive director of a nonprofit, which is a swim team, free swim team, USDA swim team. Um, and a lot of the kids who swim on the team have autism and uh, being able to, uh, you know, hang out with them here and there has really been cool because they offer a fresh perspective on the world around them and they are very eager to tell you about it. And I really appreciate their just like the way they just put things out there. You know, you and I, um, both live in the South, right? And so that's not a part of Southern culture. And so it's, it's kind of fun to go hang out with the kids who have autism because they don't really subscribe to that like Southern culture beat around the bush stuff. They're like, hey, you have a booger on your nose. <laughs> you know, like they're just so freaking cool. And I think we can learn a lot from them in the realm of friendship and how to be a good friend. But today we're going to figure out how not to be a bad friend at least. And I want to clarify before we dive into your seven deadly sins of friendship that when I say the word bad, I actually am not talking about a permanent state. It's not a permanent fixture, permanent like designation. I'm really talking about an unhealthy friendship and we can always improve our health and we can improve our ability to be a good friend. So with that disclaimer, set out there. What is our first transgression? <laughs> yeah, the, the the first one I think is one that people tend to think about the most. Uh, so seven deadly sin number one is instability. So this might be flakiness where you're not consistently showing up to, to hangouts or, or other gatherings. It might be dishonesty where you're not consistent with your words or your promises it also might be instability of your mood and Ooh. all of us have been in relationships with folks who, you know, they're one way, one minute, and then another way, another minute. And that can be, especially, you know, we look at kids who are raised by caregivers who are in, in unstable in one way or another, it's either they're unstable with affection or unstable with how present they are. Um, and that, that creates what we call disorganized attachment where the kiddo doesn't really know how to relate and makes it really hard. And even in adult relationships, we see this with people who are trying to have relationships with folks who their, their mood may be in different directions. And um, it's hard to, to be able to predict that. And so how do I stay connected with you if I'm uh, having trouble keeping up, uh, if, if that makes sense. So and no, that totally yep, makes sense. I, instability. Yeah. I have a friend that I never know what mood he's going to be in. And so I don't know what version of him I'm going to hang out with. You know, it's like, it's exhausting. So exhausting. Yeah. And uh, part of it is we, uh, because of how we're wired and what we've learned from interpersonal neurobiology, we tend to carry the feelings of other people. So if somebody might uh, be in a relationship with you and they're up one minute and down the next. And it's one thing to try and adjust your behavior to match and to support and to be with them. It's another thing to, to recognize that your uh, nervous system is is attuning with theirs. So they may be way down and you're going to feel way down or they may be way up and you're going to feel way up. And that can be whiplashy at times. Yeah. So would somebody that's like a drama mama, would that be in that category? Like someone who, you know, some people are like kind of addicted to dysfunction. You know what I mean? Would they be in that bucket? Would that be their sin? 
There's there's another sin that I think captures that really well. Uh, but I think that it's it's not just about the drama. It's about not knowing what to expect. Because I think with a drama mama, you're sort of like, or drama anybody, um, you 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 can kind of bank on them thriving on the gossip or the this is the latest chaos in my life. And so there is some stability with with what's going on for them. <laughs> That's um, true. So uh, I, I I think to some extent it's. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the idea of trying to stay connected to someone who's not even really present to themselves. And so, uh, but that doesn't mean two things can't exist at the same time. I had a, a grad school professor. This was in the context of uh, mental health diagnoses. They said, uh, just because a dog's got fleas doesn't mean they ain't got ticks too. <laughs> oh, um, meaning more than one thing can be going on for a person at one time. But that sounds like a very Texas an- analogy. You're from Idaho. Huh? Yeah, uh, that's okay. right. Um, yeah, teeny tiny town in North Idaho, thousand people, couple thousand cattle, um, and <laughs> lots of good analogies. I love it. Okay, so what's sin number two? Sin number two is betrayal. So this might look like your standards. You know, friends stabbed me in the back, or they they told some secret that I told them in confidence, and so they they betrayed my trust. But this might also include, uh, you know, not following up on agreements that you've made between each other. So let's say we've committed, we're going to go catch the newest Marvel movie on Friday after work. And then at the last minute, they cancel or they just don't show up at all. And, and that might be flakiness, but it also is, is sort of uh, the, the trust that we're supposed to have between the two of us isn't respected, isn't valued. And so it's not just that you are unstable and I can't rely on you, but um, there's something about the way that uh, we are in our relationship that feels like you aren't going to respect me. Maybe it's intentional, maybe it's not, but no matter what, it sucks. Um, and so... Yeah, being being in a relationship with somebody like that can be really hard. There's there's a, a story like I like to tell when I was in grad school. Um, I was getting connected with some of my classmates, and we had this uh, uh, Halloween event that was coming up that I was putting together. And I invited all of my classmates and all of my friends and put together a little Facebook evite because Facebook was a thing back then, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's different now. Um, and there were so many people who were planning to come and then the event finally happened and one person showed up and that was my best friend, Dan. Um, and you know, that, that for me felt like a betrayal of trust just because this was supposed to be a fun thing that we were going to do together and it ended up not working out. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, betrayals and trust can ruin any relationship, but especially in friendship. That's interesting how the first two sins can kind of, uh, overlap. They can be a tick and a flea, if you will, (laughs) because if you are a flake ball and you are a gossip person, like, okay, now I'm feeling unstable in this friendship that you might flake out on me at the moment where I may need you the most, whether that's, you know, I actually need you to pick me up for the airport or I need you to show up to this party. So I don't look like a loser, you know, whatever it is. And then you have that, um, the gossipy part where if I tell you, I felt like a loser, you might also share it. So, okay. All right. Give us number three. Number three is neglect. So if we think about friendships as plants in a garden, um, some friendships are more like succulent plants where, 
really doesn't take much main maintenance at all. This might be the kind of friend where you don't talk to him for a year. And then the two of you go and get coffee and it's like, nothing changed. Uh, you're still just as connected as before. Um, and so it doesn't really require much attention or focus. Um, and other plant, uh, uh, relationships may be, maybe more like a bonsai plant. That's, you know, you're constantly manicuring and, and paying attention to and putting lots of effort and energy in. Um, and uh, it's, it's a spectrum. So all relationships are going to be somewhere in that zone, but it, it, it's when we don't give the plant the nurturance that it needs uh, that the plant weathers and dies. And so it's uh, sometimes it might even be that we're investing too much. Like if you ever had a house plant, you watered to death, that can happen too. But in, in terms of deadly sins, this is the the worst of the two. It's, it's better to be too invested and smother somebody than to, to uh, uh, be absent or not meeting the needs necessarily. And so uh, most relationships when it comes to friendship do not end in conflict. So it's not, we have a big fight and we never talk again. Most friendships just sort of fade. So it's, we lose touch. I move to a new place. We don't hang out anymore. Uh, so that's, that's a classic example of, of neglect. Kyler, I already liked the nacho cheese references. Now you're giving me plant analogies. I feel like you like cyber stalked me a little bit before this episode because you are speaking my language and I am definitely a succulent um, as an introvert. You know, naturally that makes sense. How does the whole neglect thing work in your experience as a dude? Because I have noticed that lady friendships and dude friendships, they have different things that are normal. And when I ask, you know, the men in my life about, oh, have you talked with so-and-so or how is such and such, or that person you mention all the time, do y'all ever hang out? You know, it's, there's like a different response. Like it's, it's just different. So, and, and it's not, I'm obviously not a man, so I don't really understand. So how, do, how does that work? Is the threshold just set to a different place? It's like lower or higher? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a few different pieces here. I think one big piece is when we think about how we socialize our uh, young boys and how we raise young boys versus young girls and the expectations around everything from the language that you use when you talk about your friends to, uh, the activities that you engage in when you're hanging out with them. And uh, uh, what we've seen is that consistently our young girls are raised with a uh, lexicon of emotion words and relational words and our young boys aren't. And so we're raised to have uh, different ideas or expectations about what friendship might look like. Um, and I think that that's what, what directly leads to what we're seeing with so many men today, especially in, in America, is uh, our older men are the most isolated social group out of anybody else. Um, and it's, it's you know, somewhat ingrained. You don't really need friends. You can be the lone wolf. You're the provider. And that's what being a man is all about. You don't need other people. There's this independence uh, undertone to all of that. So me feeling lonely and admitting loneliness, wanting connection, is that the manly thing to, to admit? Maybe. But so, yeah, with with our men, I think that the, what we see when we're comparing 
similar peers who are women identified or other identified is that our men may have the exact same needs. They may just not be able to notice them or describe them. They don't have the words. They may be completely detached from those needs. And so it shows up in other ways through depression or grumpiness or substance abuse or anything else, because I'm trying to numb something that I can't even explain. Mm. So that's interesting. um, Yeah. Cause you could, I could see how like that perpetuation of societal, um, you know, I, one researcher, Dr. Niobe way, are you familiar with her work at all? Might be. Yeah. She's pretty badass. She, um, what if her book got turned into like a movie that was nominated for an award, but she talks about, she's a developmental psychologist. So she follows boys in the most non-creepy way, obviously, um, into their (laughs) adolescence and, um, takes notes about their relationships with each other and, and that sort of thing. And, um, now I've completely forgot what I've going to say. Yep. It's gone. But she, she talks about, um, the importance of male connections and really all human connections and that we need to, um, make them a priority and not just like a, a secondary thing. It's not secondary to school. It's not secondary to work that it should be, uh, at the top of the list. She calls, um, the, that masculine kind of stereotype, like the American cowboy kind of persona. And I think, um, that is really unhelpful. And I I know what I was going to say. I was going to say how that American cowboy persona almost perpetuates these deadly sins that you're talking about, about neglect and being flaky. And, you know, you brought in some substance use that may also affect people's behavior and their ability to show up as a good friend. So this is good. Okay. We're on three. Okay. So what's number four? Uh, Number four is envy, uh, which I was feeling a little envious about the the researcher a moment ago, but she's not my friend, at least not yet. So it's okay. There's plenty of time. You can make friends um, there. I'll introduce you. (laughs) uh, That'd be awesome. Uh, So so envy is is really a corrosive acid when it comes to friendship. The, the, The other friend may not even know that you're envious. It might not come up in conversation or the way that you uh, even act towards them, but it's this emotional reaction of anger or sadness or whatever it might be when our friends succeed. And when we think about our friends and the kinds of friends that we would want to have, when we're out there crushing it and doing great, we would want them to cheer for us and be happy and excited. Um, But that's not always the case. Sometimes friends see their friends as rivals. They see them as somebody that they're competing against. Um, and, And we see it in all sorts of ways, like, I buy a house and now my friend needs to buy a house or, you know, I'm, I get this fancy title at work and now my, my friend's going to get the fancy title or I get a a partner and my friend needs to get a partner. And um, it's not just about achievement. It can be about all sorts of things. It might be um, their perceived uh, level of your uh, physical attractiveness. Like my friend is super hot and that bothers me. And so I'm in a relationship with them, but it's, there's this nagging sense of, uh, gosh, I wish I had what they have or uh, whatever it might be And that, you know, that can come between, uh, two people when it comes to intimacy. How do you, as a person who maybe struggles with envy, how would you address that within yourself so that you could stop being a bad friend? 
Yeah, dude, classic envy really does come down to believing that somebody has something that you don't. And there's something around um, them having that thing that you don't that's more than, than what it appears on the surface. So they may be more successful, more attractive, more socially connected, whatever it might be. Um, and it's not just about that. There's something underneath it. It's It might be, gosh, I don't feel like unless I have those things that I don't have, that I'll be wanted by other people, that I'll be valued by society, that I matter, that I'm important. And um, that comes down to deeper hurt. There's something that underlies all of that. And so being able to pay attention to that deeper hurt, have compassion for those parts of us that react with anger and, and sadness, the the fear of missing out, whatever it might be. So I think that's, you know, the, a very frilly way of describing sort of this, this uh, core piece of, of what drives the envy. I think on a more you know, practical level, um, being willing to uh, radically accept that other people are going to be different from us, that they may have different stories, different circumstances, and the, the, the reality of the world is it's not fair. It's not designed to be perfectly accounted in every single way. Sometimes uh, bad people have wonderful things happen to them. And sometimes good people have terrible things happen to them. And sometimes we make friends with uh, people who are more successful than us. And, and that's okay. That's, that's just part of, uh, of life and part of reality. I think that some of, some of this can be balanced with being inspired. So your friend might be crushing it and you have that little sting of envy, like, gosh, I wish I was crushing it like them. And um, being able to take that and channel it into something healthy, like, you know, that makes me want to, well, I'm going to write a new blog post because uh, that's something I'm passionate about. Or maybe I'm going to sign up for that uh, uh, jujitsu class because I want to learn some new skill or uh, so take that in, uh, inspiration and use it somewhere healthy. Yeah. And, and it sounds like go to therapy. <laughs> like, and go to therapy. Cause I mean, that's, that's some deep stuff, but, and, and I think we all, it's a very human emotion. I love that you point out to channel it into inspiration that if your friend, if you've got the hot friend, then you can channel your, that envy into, okay, I wonder what they eat. Uh, let's, you know, see if I can copy them a little bit and feel good about my own body. I, I don't know. I, I might also add that. Um, I wonder if there's an opportunity to have another friend. If someone's struggling with envy, I wonder if there's an opportunity to have the other friend tell you what they admire about you. Cause you might be undervaluing like what you bring to the table um, I know we odds have also a very human thing we all struggle with, right? But it could be a little bit, um, it, it could help to just kind of ease that a little bit, make those edges a little softer in the way of envy. You might, one, one other thing that I think is interesting. So uh, I really think that most people could use a healthy dose of narcissism because so many of us are so hypercritical <laughs> yeah. and uh, down on ourselves. And so that, that can be one of those, those deeper places where envy is coming out from. It's because you see yourself as less than or not as good as or not as accomplished or whatever it might be. And so, um, yeah, the, the uh, uh, narcissists aren't going to feel envy of other people, at least the classic ones. It's the thin-skinned ones that get bothered by a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, but but uh, there was there was 
a podcast that I was listening to a couple months ago, and they talked about this idea of waking up in the morning and spending your first 60 seconds thinking about all the awesome things that you are or the, the things that you've done and, and being able to be mindful about what you can be grateful for, what you do have, and that can help set the tone for the rest of the day. Well, even in your book, like at the end, I liked how you had questions, you know, at the end of each chapter. And I use them as journal prompts because mm. I thought, oh, this is, this is kind of cool. You know, then I can spend some time thinking about it. And that would be a good journal prompt is <laughs> let me list 10 reasons that I'm awesome. <laughs> Hair flip, <laughs> nacho cheese. Okay. <laughs> nacho cheese. Okay. So number five, what's our number, our fifth sin? We're going to take a quick break to shout out the businesses who support the show. When we come back, you'll hear the rest of the deadly sins. By now, you're either thinking of yourself or bad friends you've had over the years. And you'll also hear the biggest friendship faux pas and how to avoid it. If you ever wonder where I find guests for the show, the answer is it varies a lot. And since it's something that gets asked a lot, I started including the backstory of each episode in my Monday emails. And then on Saturday, I share cliff notes and clickable links in case what you heard was so good, you wish you could have taken notes. If you want to be included, text REAL to 66866 if you're in the US or go to MeredithForReal.com if you're elsewhere. If you're listening north of the state of Georgia, mosquitoes are not top of mind right now. But if you're in the Florida panhandle or Gulf Coast of Alabama, you're already dusting off your grill and citronella candles. Make life easy for future you and get your property scheduled for a mosquito treatment with Insect. I've been using them since 2019 and they continue to impress me. They guarantee their work and pollinators are always top of mind. Check them out at ensec.net. If you watch the show on YouTube, then you see the beautiful backdrop of Trader John's, the exhibit where I record the show inside the Pensacola Museum of History. This is just one museum under the umbrella of the UWF Historic Trust. If you're planning a trip to Pensacola and need an indoor activity option, pick up a ticket. It's good for a whole week. Get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. Number five is on the flip side. Judgment, being judgy. And we're all guilty of this because this is what the human brain is designed to do. Um, we, the, one of the most basic evolutionary traits that humans needed was being able to discern a, a friend from foe. So I needed to be able to judge, are you going to hurt me or not hurt me? And so that goes way back in our history and it's something that our brains just do by default. So we're all judgers, something that we're really good at. I do think that there are some neurodiverse folks who don't judge as much, um, at the, uh, conversation for another time. Um, but judginess can look in sort of two different ways. It can be being critical towards your friends and saying judgy things towards them. Uh, it might also be uh, uh, just doing things intentionally to make them feel less than. So this could be, you could be the person who's like, oh gosh, I feel envious of my friends all the time. But it could also be that your friend is guilty of trying to make you feel less than. So they, they go and buy that fancy sports card because they want to feel better than you. Um, and not to say that everybody's this way, but this does happen sometimes. And so 
yeah, being judgmental towards friends. I think that, that I want to put a, an asterisk next to judginess because we do also want to be considerate and and take care of our friends because sometimes our friends will do stuff that is not good for them. Um, they might get into unhealthy habits. We see it all the time with friends who slip into uh, addictions or they get into abusive relationships or things like that. And it's hard. It's really hard not to be um, thinking bad things about what, what they're choosing to do. And, oh gosh, I wish there was some way I could help them. And if we were completely without any kind of consideration, no judgment whatsoever, then we may not have any motivation to to speak up to them and say, Hey, like, I'm worried about you. There's this thing going on in your life and it scares me and I want you to be okay. And so I think there are ways that you can do that in non-shaming uh, ways and, and talk about it really openly. So it's, it, it is, it's a balance between that criticism and uh, care. And this is one, this is an area that I've struggled with in the past. And two things that have helped me is, um, being in a romantic relationship with someone who's very not judgy, you know, and I see my husband, I, you know, like to say that he is so good at loving people up close, you know, he can be right up in and see all of the bad things that you are doing or have done and he will still love you. It's amazing. I'm like, who are you? I don't understand. Um, but the second thing that's helped me is also I learned through my husband is, um, I used to think that I was like ultra friend monogamous. Right. And so I've got, okay, I have my one friend who is going to do everything with me until we are dead. You know, it was like, no one else could apply to be my friend. It was Forrest Gump seats taken. Like there was not an option. And since then I've realized that friends can live in different pockets of your life. And so just because one friend that you have coffee with isn't also good to go rock climbing with doesn't mean you have to judge them. That's so true. Love is not a limited resource. Um, and I think that so many of us succulent people who <laughs> we don't really need a whole lot of, of you know, uh, people interaction because folks are stimulating and, and yeah. we can get our whole dose from one, one uh, person. I think that it's, it is important to to broaden one's scope and think about how you can have connection in different ways. And it doesn't have to just be your picture perfect best friend that one, you know, meets all needs person. It can yes. be a lot of different people. Okay. Number six. Number six is manipulation. Ooh, that's a big is, sin. That is a big, big sin. <laughs> um, and this can be uh, when, when we hear manipulation, we tend to think of using someone or uh, I'm trying to get some, some end here. So it could be you make friends with somebody because you want to get a job at the place that they work at, or um, you, uh, you know, there, there are any number of things that you could be in a relationship with somebody because you have some end goal in mind. Um, but the other way that this can show up is really when you're in a relationship with someone, manipulating them to be the kind of friend that you want. Um, so this could be, uh, let's say that you are a smoker and that's a big part of your life, uh, or at least it's something that you like to do when you're relaxing and then you're constantly pressuring, pressuring your friends into joining you with that. 
um, that's that's manipulating and it, it feels uncomfortable. I feel there's this pressure expectation as your friend that I need to do this thing that you enjoy. Um, it could it doesn't need to be smoking. It could be playing Dungeons and Dragons. It could be really anything. Um, so so when we're in relationships with folks who have some ulterior motive or some other goal that might be going on for them, uh, we can feel it. It's there's there's something that feels inauthentic here. Um, what's your game? What are you playing at? And that that really disrupts any any kind of intimacy that we might be. And it's harder for people who primarily engage with friendships digitally to pick up on those like the little part of our lizard brain that's like danger danger it doesn't seem to kick on when it's just like a web chat and you know I, I also think of extreme examples of people who get trafficked or maybe people who get catfished right it's all kind of in that same vein um, but it's it's almost like that face-to-face interaction has to be there in order for us to pick up on ooh something doesn't feel right that feel part doesn't kick in until we're um, you know eyeball to eyeball so true and some some uh, especially survivors of trauma and interpersonal abuse of any kind they th- sometimes their their sensors can be slightly altered. So it might be that you're hyper reactive. You're like, you know, the other person is being perfectly normal with you. They, they're asking reasonable things, but there's, there, the alarm bells are going off. It's, it's like a, a smoke detector in a house that's way too sensitive and be just trying to make your mac and cheese or your nachos and <laughs> it's going off. Um, gotta make those nachos. <laughs> gotta make those nachos. But then there are also the folks who become desensitized to, to red flags. It could be they grew up around red flags, and so red flags feel normal. It could be they had a long relationship with somebody, and just it, that's just how you are in relationships. So um, it's it's yeah, you're you're exactly right. Being able to pick up on what are those warning signs that that my friend might be trying to manipulate me that that can depend on a lot of things. Okay, what's our final sin? The final sin is, and you can pick any word that you choose to use here, but the word that I choose is belly aching. Um, so these are the friends that every time you hang out with them, there's just chaos in my life and everything is terrible. And, uh, you know, I'm going to complain about nine different things that are on my list. This is essentially the friend who is using you as a therapist for their catharsis. So they just need a release. They got a vent, they got a spew and this is, this is healthy in doses. Every friend should be able to vent at some point. That's so needed. It's so healthy. It's so human. This sin is a, is a sin of consistency. <laughs> so you're constantly showing up and always belly aching. There's always problems. And it's just hard to have relationships with, with other people when, when we're like that. And uh, I think the big question that comes up is, is there enough room in our relationship for all of your belly aching, but also all of my belly aching so that we can belly ache together. Um, because, uh, yeah, it's, it's very one-sided. Yeah. So you think about you're spending time with this person, they, they belly ache for an hour and then, and then you say goodbye. And it's almost like you could, you didn't even have to be there. You were a pair of ears for them and, and nothing else. And it's, 
it's that lack of curiosity that's so bothersome. Like that lack of curiosity. Ah, oh, it's, I think, uh, you know, if we were to put one giant sin over the top of it, it's really that because the, you know, in, in therapy school, when you're learning to be a therapist, there are a few things that they teach you about how to build a really great relationship in a very small amount of time. Um, one of those things is to be a good listener and hear them and understand them. And the other thing is to be curious as all heck. I really want to get to know you. I really want to understand what life is like for you. Because as, as a therapist, the, the better I am at that, the more I'm able to, to help be a, a good GPS on your journey and help guide you in the direction that you want to go. Um, but if I'm full of myself and tuned out of your experience, I'm going to give some really bad advice. And there are probably a lot of folks out there who've had therapists who give them really bad advice. And this is, this is a big part of the reason why. Yes. And it's also a big part of the reason why people have trouble, I think, developing friendships because, you know, imagine if this was you, you go and you hang out with someone and you um, diarrhea of the mouth all over them. And then you're like, God, I don't have any friends. Well, it's because you not only push that person away, but you didn't actually connect. As you said, Kyler, like it, you, the other person could have not even been there and it would have been the same experience. And so the, the bummer part about fixing this about oneself is that you begin to notice that our entire society does not ask questions. Go When I go to the hair salon and... I'm listening to the conversations, air quotes, around me. It's people taking turns speaking. And it's really like, you know, one person could be like, oh, you know, I had a fly in the house. And then that person will be like, oh, speaking of fly, I flew to see my new boyfriend, Mike, in northern Idaho, where there I heard there's cows. And, you know, it's like they're not really communicating and it makes you crazy. So boys and girls for like, make it a game. See, every time you talk to someone, ask them three questions, pretend you're a podcast host for God's sake. Thank you. End speech. <laughs> Thanks for coming to our TED talk, everyone. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, so this is interesting. Kid therapists, you're working with kiddos in therapy. You or trained not to ask questions. That is interesting. Because questions are challenges. So you raise a question to a kid, and kids don't ask each other questions. They're talking at each other. That's the, their default. And adults are just kids in bigger packages. So the adults tend to do it too. It's just adults are more used to fielding questions. It's more of an adult thing to do. But, but yeah, any anytime you ask a question, it's it's uh, it's a challenge. It's an opportunity. And it can feel uncomfortable uh, for the asker and the asked. But the, you know there, there are so many wonderful, amazing things in this world that require some discomfort, like exercising or leaving your house or putting on pants. Like these are things that we all need, um, including asking questions. It's the healthiest, most important part of relationship. It's, it's hard to be connected without knowing them. Yeah. And I, I love that if we do practice more of this, that we will not only be better friends to ourselves, to those around us, we'll feel more connected. There'll be less societal violence, but, uh, you know, I think it will make families better. It will make our employment experiences better if we 
kind of venture more into this. So this is important work. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Please, before we sign off, tell people where they can get your amazing book and keep in touch with what you're doing. Absolutely. So my book is on Amazon. If you go on Amazon and you just search for the friendship formula, it's the one with the pretty pink cover. Uh, you can also find me on my personal website. That's kylershumway.com. Or you can look me up on the Deep Eddy Psychotherapy website, especially if you are a therapist looking for a new gig or you're curious about therapy and in Texas and looking to get started. I'd love to, to help get you connected. Awesome. Thank you again. This was amazing. Thanks for listening. Do you have an iPhone? If you do, I'd be so grateful if you left a rating on Apple Podcasts. It's as easy as tapping on a few stars. You don't have to write a review if you don't want to. Just increasing the numbers of ratings will tell future guests and sponsors that what we do here is pretty awesome and they should be a part of it too. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did about the psychology of male friendships, why it's easy for boys to make friends, but hard for men. That's episode 170. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a PhD researcher studying the effects of keto on cancer. 